Welcome back to the peripheral. The last couple weeks have been a little hard trying to get this episode out, so I apologize for the delay. I had some of the worst audio issues ever, and I did my best to clean it up. Today's topic is death. On this episode, I speak with two guests, Hannah, a lady who has suffered loss and death most of her life. The second guest, Courtney, is a Victorian hair artist who has a background in death, mourning, and ways we dispose of ourselves once we pass away. I'm Hannah, and when people hear my story, like they kind of get surprised. They don't know how to react. <laughs> when people ask me about they say like, oh, where's your mom or where's your dad? When you have someone that's died in your family and someone asks you that, your immediate thought is, oh, I wish you hadn't have asked that. And it's not because we don't want to talk about it. It's because we know that we're about to make you feel like an asshole for asking. And But we people who have lost others don't want people to feel like an asshole. So <laughs> I kind of explain, you know, when I was five, my uncle passed away and that kind of started my mom's downward spiral a little bit, but it definitely ramped up her alcohol use. I was a child, so I didn't really recognize the correlation between what had happened and her changing. And she Um, was fairly close with her brother, I'm assuming, right? Yeah. yeah, It was her younger brother. It was her only sibling. And then um, when I was 10, my dad passed away and my parents weren't weren't married since I was very young. They got divorced probably before I was even one, um, but they were very close. They were very good friends. And she definitely took that really hard for herself. And I think for me also. And when I was young, I always had a fear of my parents passing away. My parents were older when they had me. They both weren't in the best of health. They didn't take very good care of themselves. They enjoyed drinking and smoking and that sort of thing and kind of just lived their life as I'm going to have fun and I'm going to do what I want to do and I'm not really going to worry about the rest. Even as a very young child, I remember every time the phone would ring at school, I would think, oh, this is it. Like the teacher's going to take me out in the hallway and tell me my one of my parents are dead. Not normal, <laughs> I don't think, for a child to be worrying about constantly. What what happened with your father? How did he? Well, actually, my mom, she didn't tell me the truth about it for a long time. I think she wanted to protect me a little bit from the details. She didn't really tell me what happened. She kind of just told me like he was very sick. Later on, I had been kind of snooping through things and found out that they think that he had had a heart attack and he was in um, the hot tub and had drowned. I was 10 and I took it really hard. I, for years after that, on the day that he died, I would stay home from school. My mom didn't make me go to school. I would just kind of sit in my room and wallow in my sadness. Um, I mean, your father has just passed away. This is a big deal. Yeah, it's it's definitely a big deal. But so when I was 19, there was other deaths in between. But when I was 19, my mom passed away. So I was much older then. And... The difference in when someone passes away when you're an adult and when you're a child is just amazing. Because when you're a child, you don't, or when it's the first time, I guess, maybe not necessarily just when you're a child, but 
the first time you experience such a big loss, it's you don't know. You don't know what this feeling is. You don't know if you're going to feel better. You don't know if you're going to get through it. Yeah, you don't. You just like it's all new and you don't understand. And when someone dies like that, it's it's like the whole world kind of shifts. Like you recognize everything and you kind of know where you are, but it all just feels different. And it's you can't it's hard to explain unless you really experience it. How is it different when you're older and you're 19? Were you ready for it or was it more impactful for you? I wasn't I wasn't ready for either of them. We It wasn't like oh, we know they're going to die soon. It was, I mean, I knew something was wrong. I found out because she didn't call me on Father's Day, which was a big deal because she knew Father's Day was hard for me. Uh, And I called my sister and I was like, something is up. Something is wrong. I just, I know it. And then of course, my sister ended up finding her. It was different. It was good and bad. It was better than the first experience in that I knew this wasn't going to last forever. This feeling of I'm in this pit is not like I will get through it. It will start to slowly fade away. There is hope. There is a light at the end of the tunnel that I'm not going to drown. But at the same time, when you're older, you have more time and more knowledge. So you process it more. You analyze it more. You think about it more. Like I didn't sleep for months after that. Um, I just would stay awake and I couldn't shut my brain off and I couldn't sleep because I just kept thinking about everything. And so that's the kind of the difference from being an adult and a child is when you're a child, you don't think about the details and the, any of it as much. You're kind of just like, I'm sad and this is hard and you live in that way. When you're older, it's definitely a lot more of a struggle to get through knowing what happened and images in your head and things like that it's a lot more intense it stings a lot more but if you've experienced it you can get kind of to that next step exactly for me it was kind of in a way i appreciated that i had been through it before because i i was able to really keep myself out of going into too deep of a depression because i knew it wasn't just going to keep lasting that way the the pain would not be this bad forever So 19, you've now lost your father and your mother. Yes. And in between, there was a couple really close family friends that we lost also. And there was one that impacted me pretty significantly. There was a woman that um, I used to babysit for a lot. And there was one night that she had called and asked me to babysit. I'm not really sure. I was maybe 12. Um, And I blew her off. I was like, I want to hang out with my friends. I'm busy today. And she ended up dying that night. So that definitely, that would impact me a lot too. Because that's one of those situations where you kind of think like, okay, so what would have happened if I was there? Could, would something have been different? Could could the outcome have changed? Probably not because she died of an aneurysm. So, But that doesn't change the way you second guess yeah, yourself. And even you're- in your head, if you know, like, there's probably nothing I could have feasibly done to have changed the outcome of this. You still think maybe, but maybe there would have been. I don't know. <laughs> it goes through your head of, it's not always logical. My brother passed away in 2004. And when people say, hey, how's your brother? And I say, oh, well, he's passed away or he's dead. Yeah. They come back with, I'm sorry for your loss. 
Yeah. Now, going back to your, it makes, you don't want the other people to feel uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I don't, I don't actually like it when people say that because I feel it's the default answer. It's the only thing they know how to say and yeah, actually prefer them just to say that sucks and move on. Mm -hmm. Like what, how do you feel about that? I mean, that definitely makes sense. I, I think it's so hard for people who haven't been through it. Like I said, like they just, they don't know what to say and they, they kind of just, they do, they go to that default answer unless they have lost somebody. Cause sometimes if you have lost somebody, you know more what you could say. Cause you know what you would want someone to say to you. Yeah. I agree with you a little bit on that. I don't really fault them for that at all because I can't, <laughs> yeah, I can't really tell them what to say ahead of time. And a lot of times when it's people I don't know very well and they ask about my parents, I just kind of say like, they're good. Like I don't even bother to explain <laughs> to explain because it's like it's awkward and they feel bad and they like want to try to make you feel better and that's not their job to try to make you feel better and try to do anything about it like it happened it's my life let's just keep going with our conversation you know yeah, yeah exactly there's a quote it's actually from Grey's Anatomy there's someone's father dies and they're, the two characters are talking, and he says, I don't know how to live in a world without my dad in it. And the girl says, like, yeah, that doesn't really ever change. And I feel like that's really powerful. Like, when I heard that, I use it all the time to explain to people because it's true. Everything is different. It takes you forever to not pick up the phone and try to call that person to tell them things. And even now I'm like, Oh, I wish I could tell her this, or I wish she could see this. And it's something that you have to live through for the rest of your life. There's always going to be a moment where you're going to wish, I wish this person could see, you know, like my kids, like I have two kids and my parents never saw them. And it's hard to see them growing up and wishing they could play with them or I could send them pictures and stuff like that. But you kind of make up for it with the other people that are left in your life. And the friends that you make, you kind of just have to make your new family. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Like you kind of, you just, you don't have any other choice because in, when things like this happen to you, either you let it make you stronger or you let it tear you apart. As an example, my mom let it tear her apart and it completely destroyed her. And the last few years of her life was bad because she was miserable and we had a very poor relationship because she couldn't move past it. She couldn't bring herself out of that hole. And I kind of saw her do that. And it made me really not, it made me not want to do that. It made me not want to be the person that stays home and sits and just cries all day. It made me really want to use it to make myself stronger and motivate me. Was your mother very supportive of you or was she always dealing with her own demons that you wouldn't get a lot of uh, nurturing and support from her? I, like, I knew she loved me, but there was definitely not a lot of support from her because, like you said, she was really dealing a lot with her own internal struggles from everything that had happened and she had gotten further into drugs and alcohol like to the point that 
when I was 12, I left and moved in with my sister and didn't live with my mom. And I didn't speak to my mom for a few years Mm -hmm. because I was 12 and I was going down a bad path. I was seeing myself getting into drinking and doing things I shouldn't do because I didn't have anybody to lay down any rules for me. It was my mom was in her room sleeping for a week (laughs) and I would leave a note and say, Hey, I'll call you later or I'll be back tomorrow. And I would just leave. But could, and it didn't matter. It it didn't matter because she didn't have the, the energy to do anything about it. She didn't, she wasn't going to punish me. I was kind of in this phase where I'm like, what is she going to do? And, but eventually I kind of got to a point where I was like, enough is enough. I'm in this bad situation and I can't do this. I can't become this person. As much as I love my mother, I didn't want to become her. I didn't want to let my demons take me over. Do you find yourself being more or less sympathetic to others that can't handle their demons as well? Do you see your mother in them or do you feel more sad and sympathize with them? I think that's a really good question. Because I'm absolutely unsympathetic because my brother and most of my family members who've gone through drug addiction and stuff, Mm -hmm. it's, I I just, I've lost my tolerance, but I absolutely understand that this person probably doesn't have control over it, but. I, I definitely got to a point later, like, uh, I tried to move back in with my mom when I was maybe 17 or something and I left the same day. She was drinking and smoking and puking. And I was like, I can't be your parent. I can't do this. So I definitely have a harder time. But at the same time, I feel more sympathy for the people around them than the people going through it themselves. I try to. I know that that's my own personal problem. It's like I've also in the past, like I used to have a really hard time when people would be really devastated when I was like a teenager, when people would be really devastated about like a grandparent dying or something, because in my head, I was kind of like, but I've gone through worse. That's kind of like how I felt at the time. Now I'm much better about recognizing, you know, everyone has different relationships and everyone has different situations. Do you find yourself feeling alienated or drawn to or not drawn to people because of your experiences compared to theirs? It's hard because I've never really found anybody that's had a very similar experience to mine. So I've never been like, oh, me too. I totally get that. But I definitely feel like when I find somebody who's had something kind of similar, like they've had a parent go through addiction issues or something like that, that I definitely feel more drawn to people Mm -hmm. um, because it's easier to relate and it's harder when someone just doesn't understand even at all what you've been through or what you've seen to understand kind of how you have got to where you are in life. Cause people always, they always wonder like, how are you so like you grew up so fast yeah. is what everyone always says to me. And I say like, I didn't have a choice. Or, or they know, wonder is, why you're not a wreck. Could have been. <laughs> yeah. I could have very easily become a wreck. You have to make that choice to not let it do that to you. And when I see them struggling, I try to reach out to other people, reach out and share my experience a lot. 
to try to help other people because I, I get what it's like to kind of be in that moment. I always just think of it that way as, as far as how was I brought up and then how can I not make the same mistakes? So, <laughs> yes, exactly. How, how can I turn out differently? And mm-hmm. so, like for me, that was the only way I can turn out differently is to, I need structure. I need someone who's going to help me through this and who's going to put in the effort to help me kind of move on from everything that's happened to me. From what I can remember, I didn't have a lot of raising, so to speak. Like, I don't remember a lot of kind of being taken care of. I remember making a lot of dinners myself. And I remember, you know, going off to the park myself. I don't remember a lot of like parent interaction, I guess. So it's kind of hard for me to try to do it differently because it's like anything I do would be different. So it's so kind of how I feel. E- even getting up in the morning, you're, you're one step ahead of. Yeah. Basically like, yeah, I'm getting out of bed. I'm making a lunch for the kids or I'm giving them their clothes to wear. Like already that's something different. And it's, it's even hard within my own family. Cause my, my youngest sister is 12 years older than me. Her experience and my other brothers and sisters, their experience of my family and of my mother was so different from mine. The mom that they saw worked hard and was loving and caring. And, you know, she went to work and did what she had to do to get the stuff for the kids. And I, it was like, I was raised by a totally different person. And as much as, like I said, I I loved her and I know that she loved me, but it's hard to not feel a little bit resentful. But I think that since her death, it's been a little bit easier to let that go and move on and not feel so angry about it. Do you get along with your siblings? Your I do, yes. Okay. We're all very, we're pretty close. Well, <laughs> <laughs> my sister are close. <laughs> I know how it is. If the deaths hadn't happened, I don't, I don't think it would have ended up the same. Are you afraid of death? I am. And I have, I have very bad anxiety and I definitely freak out about death. I think part of that is, but well, both my parents died when they were 52. (laughs) So when I'm 52, I'm going to be watching my back for sure. Um, (laughs) But you're nothing like them. (laughs) I know, but it's like, they're the same age. Like for the longest time, I'm like, Oh, that's so scary. So this is final destination scenario for you. I think it's hard because I was raised just completely without religion. Like we were not like, Oh, we don't believe in religion or anything. It was just like, it wasn't really a part of our lives. And my view is just kind of like, I don't, I don't know. So I think it's a little bit harder when you just fully admit you don't know what's going to happen after you die to think about death because it's scary and unknown. Yes, it is. And thank you so much for coming on Hannah. Next up is Courtney who I've asked, why do people not like to talk about death? Why is it such a taboo topic? That is very common in this day and age. That Just in modern Western culture, death is obviously something that happens to everyone. We know people that pass away. We all eventually will do so ourselves. But you don't talk about it with friends, with 
even your family sometimes, which might be the most important to talk about it with. And the levels to which people go to to suppress talking or thinking about death um, certainly vary based on regions and personal preferences, but what it really comes down to is people are afraid of death often. It's not a fun topic. It's not a sexy topic. Um, people don't want to talk about really any aspect of death. They don't want to talk about their feelings, their fears. If they're mourning someone, you feel like it's a burden to talk to someone about your feelings there. Uh, people don't want to talk to what happened, talk about what happens to your body after death. <laughs> The decomposition process, we often try to hide that away, and we try to hide dead bodies themselves from the public as much as possible. It might be a weird analogy, but I think of like when we eat food, like chicken nuggets are made to not resemble anything of a dead animal, when really technically you're eating a dead animal. Do we do the same with how we, you know, if you have an open casket funeral, you they, they make the body look totally unnatural to me. Yes, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because there are many levels there too. Um, even if you take a look at traditional burial as an example, and by that I mean the body gets embalmed, it gets buried in a casket. Uh, that process itself is not actually medically necessary at all. It's something that people are just used to and have done for so long that it's presumed that that's what you do when you die. It, it's the tradition, exactly. What really happens during an embalming process, the body gets pumped full of all these chemicals, you get the hair trimmed neat and tidy, you get the makeup done, and you try to make them look as if they aren't dead. <laughs> I know some people in the funeral industry that always use sleeping. You want it to make it look like the body is sleeping peacefully. Uh, they go so far as to put caps under the eyelids so it doesn't show that the eyes have started to sink in, and they'll wire the jaw shut, and all these different things that they go through just to try to make it look like it's not a dead body. And even uh, the caskets that get buried in, if you think about old uh, vampire movies, they're all in a coffin. And a coffin was made to resemble a human shape. It's broader at the shoulders. It tapers off at the legs. It's the right size and shape for a body. And we've now transitioned to caskets, which are a rectangle. They have a soft linen bedding. They come with all the bells and whistles and... For a dead body that's not going to appreciate anything. Exactly, exactly. And so it's it's really trying to polish something and and it's almost a form of denial, if you think about it. You you want to... Of course, everyone wants to picture, oh, my, my mother, when she passes away, she's just resting peacefully. And I, I want the best for mom. I want her to be in a beautiful casket. But that's not reality. Some commune, Quaker, religious sex that they'll leave the body and wake in the house for a few days? That is getting less and less common. That used to be the norm. If you go back a hundred years, a couple hundred years, 
um, throughout history, traditionally funerals have been in the home. The person would usually die in the home, and then it would be up to typically the women of the household to wash the body, lay it out, perhaps in the parlor, and and a wake or a funeral would take place right in the home. And they would leave the body there for a couple days as, as long as the family felt they needed to have that time with the body to have their mourning. So how have we changed over the years? How did we used to do it in the 1800s? The culture was different for a couple of different reasons back in the Victorian era and and even going earlier because people, I feel, were more accepting of death. They knew it was going to happen. There was, for example, a higher infant mortality rate. More children passed away. Um, there was more disease because there obviously wasn't modern vaccinations and medications. So people, I think, always sort of had it in their mind that death was always possible. And they weren't afraid of a dead body. They, they would take care of it in the home. They, would, they wouldn't send it off to be made to look like it was still alive for all eternity. And, and now we have a movie like, what is it, Stand By Me, where the kids are going on an adventure. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I mean, if you go back just a, a few hundred years, there would be dead bodies in the streets and people would come by in carts to pick up the dead bodies every couple of days. So it's actually very new that we don't see dead bodies everywhere. And if there's an accident, an, an ambulance taking a dead body away, we'll cover it in a blanket. All of us have been in a hospital at one point or another, but how many dead bodies have you seen in a hospital? None. None. And, and people do die in hospitals more often today than they did back then. It's people, more people are dying in a hospital rather than at home. Surprising, because I've been to hospitals to visit family all the time and I've never even seen one carted off or somebody who is sharing a room like they really keep that under wraps. Some hospitals even go so far as to have sort of a a stretcher that you would normally transport someone maybe off to surgery but they have sort of a false bottom to it. They'll actually put the dead body under the top, so they'll just be rolling a cart down the hall. It appears to be an empty stretcher, but there there may be a dead body in there because they want to protect the public from that. People don't want to see the dead body, but if you think about it, it's only natural that people do die in hospitals and they have a morgue in the basement until they can go to the funeral home. I guess it's just they don't want to disturb. They don't want to upset. Exactly. And, and that's the whole notion behind it is they don't want people to be afraid or freaked out about this dead body. But death is so natural. We, we all do it. Why is it so hard for us to bring ourselves to think about it and accept it? Why isn't it normal to us that people die in a hospital? And, and most people I know actually say, oh, my grandfather just passed away and he wanted to die at home. So we brought him home. And mm -hmm. I, I like to hear that because if I'm dying, 
I would like to be in a familiar surrounding. Absolutely, and and that has a big part of it too. And the the fact that modern funeral industries can come and pick up a body almost as soon as it has passed away, it it almost gives a paranoia to the public of uh, oh we need to get this dead body out of here. It spreads disease. Ah, uh, the off. disease. <laughs> uh, Many dead bodies are a lot more safe than living bodies. <laughs> In reality, a, a body will not begin to putrefy for two or three days until or after death. And even more so if you put it on ice. And so... It's um, in the climate-controlled environment. Exactly, climate-controlled. So realistically, you can have a body in your home for a few days, and there is no negative repercussions to that. I, I would argue uh, that it even has a benefit because that does give the family the time that they need to see the body come to terms with what has happened, um, say their last goodbyes. I've, I've been to some funerals where they've been open casket where the family doesn't seem to want to leave because they know as soon as they do, that body is going to go in the ground and it will be gone. And maybe that's a product of only having an hour or so to see their dead body when many people might need more time than that to process it. Yeah, I mean, it's a part of mourning. And I've seen people that they are able to understand that, okay, they were dying and now they're dead. And I mm -hmm. already said my goodbyes when they were in the process of it. But then I see other people that are, their loved one died years ago and they're still not handling it. They're not uh, able to process the loss. Right. Absolutely. And, and everybody does mourn differently. And some situations weren't different outcomes. For some people, if their elderly grandparent has been sick for a couple years and they know that it's coming, sometimes that's easier to accept than your sister who died tragically in a car accident and she was young and you just weren't expecting it. I've found talking to many people in mourning who are grieving that seeing the dead body is has a lot to do with processing it and accepting it. And and I can understand that because uh, we, we know that the stages of grief, denial is one of the stages that many people go through. And, and you could get stuck in denial. And if you don't have something tangible to see and feel, um, then it can be even the more difficult to overcome. I always hear about people that their daughter or son, child dies, and then they they keep their room, their childhood bedroom, exactly mm. how it was left. Sometimes they accept that their child's gone, but to me that is a sense of denial. Like, they might come home one day and their room needs to be ready for them. Yeah. Maybe it's not hurting them, maybe it's not a problem, but I would just assume it's better to go through the stages instead of being stuck on one. And, and I'd agree with that. And uh, I, I think another key component to getting through the grief and getting through the mourning process is to prepare yourself for it to a certain extent. If, if there's an unexpected death, you're not going around every single day thinking, you know, anyone I know at any given moment can drop dead. Yeah. As, as real as that might be, nobody's thinking that all the time. But if you 
just every now and then take some time to talk about death with your family, with your friends, talk about your concerns, talk about your wishes, talk to your parents about their wishes, because more often than not, the parent will die before the child in the age of modern medicine. And so talk about what they want. And, and as uncomfortable as that situation can be, as much as people don't want to go there and talk about it, um, it can really help a lot. It can say, okay, well, now I know that mom does want to be cremated as opposed to buried, and that's her wish, and now I'll be more prepared for it. And that's one less decision to make after the fact. One less argument to have with family members of what Yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so just just knowing that and even in situation, even in pre-death situations, do you know, do they want to um, have a DNR, a do not resuscitate? Um, what do they want for their final care if they can't make their own decisions? And that kind of thing, because it, it's very stressful and it can be incredibly tragic. And like you said, families can argue over it. Um, we see it all the time. You see it all the time. Um, I'm, I'm reminded of the case of Terry Schiavo, um, where for those of you that don't know, she was on life support for, I think, something like 15 years. And her husband wanted to have her feeding tube removed, but the parents were fighting it and fighting it. And so it was this constant tear between the family. And she did eventually... Um, pass away 15 years after this fact. And I just can't imagine the stress of that situation where perhaps had she talked to her husband and her parents about if the worst possible situation happens, this is how I want to do it and accept it. That, that's something that could have been avoided. And, and many situations similar to that one happen every day. I think on first dates, people should decide whether or not they want to have kids. <laughs> yes. On the first date, first talk about do you want kids, then talk about how do you want to die. Because there's no surprises down the road. I've recently been talking with various members of my family and and some of my friends about final wishes. And I went to visit my grandmother and... It occurred to me that I had no idea what she was thinking for end of her life. And it's not on my radar. She's in good health. Um, God willing, she'll have another good uh, 10, 15, 20 years in her. But anything can happen, you know? And so I thought, well, maybe this is a conversation I should have just so I know, so I'm aware. And, you know, she talked about it a little bit and thought, well... I always thought I'd be buried just how my mother and daddy were, just an embalmed casket in the ground in a burial plot. But now I'm now that I'm older, I'm thinking maybe cremation is cheaper, more efficient. Maybe that's going to be the easier. And so we talked about that a little bit. And, and I said, are those the only two things you've been considering? And she said, well, what else is there? And And that really struck a chord with me for a couple reasons, uh, people just don't always know their options either. So if someone is mourning the loss of a loved one, say they're in the funeral parlor and trying to decide what's going to happen, um, 
they can unfortunately in some situations be maybe pressured into uh, being upsold on a fancier casket. Um, we know that many large corporations buy small funeral homes, but at the end of the line, at the end of the day, it, it's still a corporation. They, they still want to make an extra couple dollars. And if, if you're mourning and grieving your lost loved one and you weren't prepared for it, you can be more susceptible to that. And a lot of people don't know they're buying options there. So that was a huge thing. And what, what are other options besides being buried or being cremated? Unfortunately, there aren't a lot. <laughs> there aren't a whole lot of other options, only because in America, at the very least, there are a lot of very odd restrictions about death and what you can or cannot do with a dead body. And, and some of them actually hinder even more environmentally friendly options. Um, one option that I'm a personal fan of is natural burial, which many cemeteries will not allow. So you do have to do your research if this is an option that you're looking into, but that's essentially just as, as natural as it can be. You are placed in just a, a shroud of cloth and directly buried in the ground. And therefore, natural decomposition can take place, and it's more environmentally sound. Um, it's also metal and plastic, metal and plastic, and and the chemicals, the formaldehyde from embalming. Um, but it's also more inexpensive for the family to do that. That is an option that I did bring up to my grandmother. I thought, have you ever considered this? Just because that's my personal preference. Didn't go well. well, I I had to give uh, props to my grandmother. This might have been the most morbid I've ever seen her, and it was m mildly amusing. But that's because I'm a little bit twisted. She started reciting uh, the hearse song. Are you aware of that song? I, I remember it from uh, the the spooky books that you read. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> and that, that dates back to, it was very common during world war one, you know, the worms crawl in, the worms crawl out, the worms, <laughs> the worms play pinnacle on your snout. And she started reciting that. And I thought that was fantastic. Okay. So she doesn't want natural burial, but that, that got me thinking too. That's, that's another form of, of death denial that many of us have is that we don't want to decompose. Well, it's like the Egyptian pharaohs. They want their, their body to be... Preserved, yeah. yes. And so that's very interesting where the psychology and the culture behind that comes as well. Let's see, another, another option which I would like to be legal in more places. Um, right now, only a handful of states in the U.S. currently support it, but alkaline hydrolysis is an option in some states, which is sometimes known as liquid cremation. Obviously, cremation, um, the body gets burned and the ashes go to the family. Alkaline hydrolysis, the body actually gets dissolved in a solution of water and lye, and what remains is still the exact same ashes you would receive from a cremation. So the family walks away with the same relics, if you will, and it's actually more environmentally sound than cremation. Those, those are options that are out there, which 
truly, I don't see any reason why alkaline hydrolysis isn't legal all over the U.S. And also there's the whole donating your organs, donating your entire body to science. Yes, there are organ donations and body donations, which I, I would like maybe to have that tweaked a little bit. If you donate your body to science... You don't necessarily know what they're going to do with the body. You can't say, I want it to go toward medical research. I want it to go toward cancer research. So you don't really have that decision. It just goes, it's donated, and they can do with it what they wish. Some people are completely fine with that. Um, so it's definitely a good option if if you keep that in mind. But I think that's important for people to know as well. Um, I don't want to give anyone a false impression of what would happen if, if you go with that option. And, and there, there's a great movement happening right now about people that are trying to go toward just new, um, greener options for disposing of a dead body. There's um, Out West, there's an effort to try to compost dead bodies. It, it makes all the sense in the world from an environmental standpoint, but how do you get that normalized in this culture that still wants to make a dead body look like it's asleep? It, to, it's a huge undertaking to try to change that. Mm-hmm. No, it, it is. And I really absolutely have been afraid of death, and I, I think about it a lot. It's not a anxiety that I suffer from, but it's absolutely a phobia I have. Mm-hmm. Just like I have a phobia of heights, but I'm not always <laughs> up on a roof, so I don't <laughs> suffer from it all the time. Right. I, but I don't know if I've mourned correctly when I've had people die around me, distance myself. And mm-hmm. when they died, they were already dead to me. Sure. So I already kind of went through the morning, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I just can't think it's healthy either. <laughs> it, it can be. I've heard that from from many different people. And uh, as I've mentioned, and as is common knowledge, everyone does mourn differently. And sometimes it is easier for people if they come to terms with the inevitable before it's at your doorstep. And I don't know if I think my soul, my entity, my, my life force leaves my body. My body's only my vehicle. So once I'm dead, do whatever you want with my body. Mm-hmm. Like, it does not matter to me at all. I would just hope that nobody's fighting over it or being taken to the bank <laughs> with the disposal of my body. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and an increasing number of people are feeling that way. And so if, if that's truly how you feel, I'd recommend to anybody just saying that to your family and, and letting them know the decision will be yours. What's going to be more comfortable for you? Um, as many people say, a funeral is not for the dead, it's for the living. So if, if they're aware that they have a decision to make, then, then maybe it's not going to be as much of a shock when they get to that point. But I guess I just don't understand why more people don't feel that way, especially mm. when we live in a country that's very religious. The whole concept of heaven or your spirit, your soul going, going somewhere. Mm-hmm. Why would anyone have this attachment to a body? And that brings up an interesting point as well, because for... Many years before modern embalming, it was just assumed you were going to get buried and you were going to decompose, and that's that. Really, the way modern embalming got started was during the Civil War, when families wanted to see the body of their loved one who died at war, the body of the soldier. 
Well, that was not easy to transport a body back then. It would take days or weeks to get it back to the family. And without some kind of preservation, it just wasn't feasible. So that's actually how embalming began and became a common practice. And it was solely to be able to transport the body. Ever since then, it's become corporatized. It's become uh, profits. Everyone dies. If everyone's getting embalmed, um, there, there's a lot of money to be made there. And so uh, modern embalming didn't really start out of a religious concept. T currently today in America, the traditional burials are still disproportionately at religious funerals, um, such as Catholic funerals. And that's not to say that it's bad. I am in the camp that whatever does make the family feel the best is what should be done. But on the other hand, I do believe that maybe people are just pressured by society and just by what they've known and other funerals they've been to where it's just assumed that this is what you do. Yeah. And they don't know the other options and they don't really think about where they stand on that issue. A lot of people don't think what's really going to be the difference between a cremation or a burial. And we just don't have those conversations or even to ourselves in our heads, a lot of people don't want to think about it. Well, I think it's true in all facets. I think, oh, you're supposed to just get married, have kids, <laughs> go to college, go to work, mm -hmm. retire and die. And no one ever considers the other mm -hmm. option. And especially when it comes to death and burials. And many people don't. And another interesting component of that you mentioned that in in all aspects of society you know your relationships the way you live have sort of been dictated by society and today i would say our country is getting increasingly more secular there are more people that are non-religious today than there were 50 or so years ago and so you begin to see maybe uh, couples that are living together for many years before they get married, which isn't, hasn't been the societal norm. You get an interesting issue when you start thinking about death because there's another aspect to it. A lot of people use their religion or their faith as a way to come to terms with death. Um, I'm sure everyone's heard like they're they're in a better place now. Heaven. So many people wonder how do people come to terms with death if they don't think there's a heaven? If you aren't a religious person, how then do you cope with death? And that's a tough question. Some people do have a fear of what does happen after death. Well, it's the fear of the unknown. The unknown, exactly. I, 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 I just personally believe that you're snuffed out like a candle and there's nothing <laughs> and there's no afterlife there's no happy or sad place mm -hmm. to go i've spoken to a few people that have actually died and been brought back and they said there was no light at the end of the tunnel they said there was nothing mm -hmm. they like they remember nothing like that's a kind of a contradiction but they remember that there was nothing and well if there's nothing how did they remember it well it felt eternal to them. <laughs> yeah, and that's back. that's incredibly interesting. I I can't remember who uh, penned this quote, but this quote has always resonated with me. Where someone once wrote, 
after you die, you are what you were before birth. And no one remembers before birth. Yeah. Many, most people I'd say would say there wasn't anything before birth. And that's very, very difficult as a cognitive being to wrap your head around. Like, what if there is nothing? You, it's hard to fathom nothing. Yeah. So that, that can also increase the fear in some cases. Because we, we like to believe, oh, you're going to a better place. Or, oh, I can use my Ouija board and I can talk to the <laughs> Or, I can, there's always, there's so many constructs of mm -hmm. where you go after death. These are real and it gives us a sense of comfort mm -hmm. to think there's something, mm -hmm. even if we don't understand it. And not that I don't believe in any of those things, I just don't accept it for myself. Honestly, personally, to me, I find something very calming about thinking that there just isn't anything, nothing that I'm going to remember or experience. Maybe that's because I've just spent years thinking about it and talking about it that I've come to accept it and believe that. Now, um, sort of flipping back to morning here, I think we got a, a bit on a tangent. I, I tend to do that. I'm sorry. Even just mourning for the living that are left to mourn and grieve, that has changed drastically as well. Um, I myself am a historian of the Victorian era in particular, and so I've always been fascinated with the way that they do mourn their dead. And back then their mourning was very open, very public. There would be widows who would be actually exposed Expected by society to be in mourning for about two years after the death of their spouse. And what did that consist of? Oh, that consisted of many, many things. It varied regionally, but overall in the Victorian era for about the first year after the death of an immediate family member. So a spouse, sometimes a parent or a child, you were expected to wear all black. You were expected to wear a veil over the face. Um, you were expected to wear fabrics that were very high quality. You were expected to do that for an entire year for a full morning is what they called it back then. Were you not allowed, like if your husband passed away, were you not allowed to date or? Oh, no, no, no. You're in mourning, right? Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> not while you're in mourning. Absolutely not. It would actually be frowned upon. Um, it did vary. Some would say six months as etiquette. Some would say a full year. Some would say two where it was not proper for a widow to be at a public engagement that was meant for entertainment. So you should not go to the local fair. You should not go to a concert. You were basically made to stay in the home or attend church, not to do anything that was supposed to be entertaining. Now, now that was the first year. Now, after the first year, they got a little more lenient you could start adding maybe some some grays here and there to your wardrobe, maybe a couple of little hints of white, and that was for another six months, and that was just, I guess, sort of the moderate 
morning and then there was light morning after that six months where you could wear some darker colors so black and say a dark purple <laughs> and so you could start adding colors but it, it was gradual you'd have to have a dark color and so that that was just a complete reversal of what it is today where many people don't even openly mourn anymore they keep it to themselves and I know in some instances of the workplace, they'll, oh, well, your parent died or your spouse died. You have two days of paid leave off and and a bereavement. <laughs> and, and, and then you're expected to be back working full. Where once you were expected to mourn for maybe even longer than someone needed. Now, okay, have the funeral, get it over with, resume your life. The employment, the job is more important. The system has to continue to roll and you are not considered. They were very, very sentimental in the past about mourning. Um, my, my favorite mourning custom is Victorian hair art and jewelry. I'm a Victorian hair artist myself. They would weave elaborate wreaths out of the hair of their lost loved one and uh, display it in their parlor and in their home. And that brought comfort to them because this this was their hair. I can still see it. it. It looks like their hair, it's the same color. It is part of them that I can keep and cherish. Or widows would often put it in a lock of jewelry made, of course, of black pitch usually because you can't have any bright colors when you're mourning. Occasionally there would be gold. And there would be very detailed pictures made of the hair. And that would just be jewelry that someone in mourning could wear and keep forever. Why not? It, it's something that is clean and safe. And, and hair is one of the very few parts of your body that will not decompose. So you can safely keep it and do what you would like with it. The, the other alternative would be the cremated remains if cremation was the option you went with. Nowadays, people are coming out with um, cremation marbles where the cremated ashes can be blown into glass. And so that's sort of the memorabilia that people are starting to discover and accept. And so if people are doing it with cremated ashes, why not make a beautiful piece of art out of the hair? Well, an another really interesting habit of mourning that was around in the Victorian era, but actually dates back to ancient Roman times, were tear bottles, where if someone was in mourning, they would keep a bottle with them, sometimes worn as a necklace, and they would collect their tears in that bottle. Now, in the Roman times, they would collect the tears on the day of the funeral, and once the tears evaporated, that symbolized the end of the mourning period. I mean, how do you get your tears? You just put it on your face and just... Sometimes, some of them got interesting and... Uh, yeah, some... something? <laughs> Sometimes there were. There, there was a little tear spout. Um, some of them not as much. And some of them you look at and say, how did they do that? And um, there, there have been in some cultures even current day in some parts of Asia where they will have hired mourners, where the family or the family and friends think that their grief is not enough. So they'll actually hire people to come to the funeral and scream and cry and wail. And exactly. And so 
that actually, um, I've seen older customs where they've used tear bottles to symbolize which hired mourner did the best job. Whoever has the most tears in their bottle gets the most compensation. <laughs> and, and I've always found cultures that do things like that com completely fascinating. Again, it's for the living. It is. It, it's for the living. And if family thinks I will feel better if there are more people at the funeral crying, maybe it does help some people. I, I can't say I've ever thought that this would actually help me, but if it helps you, more power to you. <laughs> uh, do you have any website or anything? like? Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Um, well, I mentioned that I am a Victorian hair artist, one of very few in the world. I'm trying my best to revive this art form. I think it's beautiful and unique, and I think that it is something that can be a valuable mourning tool for people that are into that kind of thing. So my business is called Never Forgotten. Um, you can find me online on most social medias, Never Forgotten by Courtney Lane, and my website is neverforgottencl.com where you can contact me for a custom order. I can work with you if you want a piece of jewelry or a flat picture for the wall or a big elaborate sculpture, um, depending on how much hair you have. And so I also do have a blog on my website. It's fairly new, so there aren't a whole lot of installments, but if, if the weird side of history and mourning and hair art appeals to you, um, that's one of the few places online where you can get some information on that. <laughs> MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.